It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're talking with Sanjay Rawal, director of the new documentary film called Gather. Sanjay has spent more than 15 years working on human rights campaigns around the world, and his work has led him to create another documentary you may be familiar with called Food Chains in 2014, which won the James Beard Award. His new film explores the Native American food culture and how that is tied to the land we live on today. Welcome to the podcast, Sanjay. Thank you so much, Christy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we get to the film, let's talk about your own story. What brought you to filmmaking and to food as a focal point? But my, my dad, my dad and my mom. My dad and mom were both born in India, but my dad came to graduate school at Oklahoma State and then moved to the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, where he studied forage grasses and uh, got a PhD in that. He was wow. part of the Green Revolution, but his professor, Jack Harlan, had the foresight to focus on protecting genetic materials. And my dad's first job was working for the Rockefeller Foundation in West Africa, collecting and saving seeds. And he actually started and helped actually helped start the first USDA seed database, the seed bank, which is still in existence at, the, uh, at Colorado State in Fort Collins. But my dad quickly became a tomato breeder and moved the family from Colorado to California. He worked for Del Monte and then RJR then Cal Jean before really launching into the organic movement. If any of your listeners have ever had a winter cherry tomato from the Del Cabo brand at Whole Foods or Trader mm-hmm. Joe's, chances are those seeds came from my dad's genetics. Wow, so, so you are really connected to tomatoes in a big way. Big time. And my first film came after 15 years of working in human rights, and my dad sent me a book by Barry Estabrook called Tomato Land about the human rights violations in the tomato fields in South Florida. I was shocked that things I thought were historical relics in labor in the U.S., like forced bondage, sexual harassment in the field, modern-day slavery, were not uncommon then in Florida. But there was a small group of tomato pickers called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers that looked all the way up the supply chain and pressured giant buyers like Walmart and McDonald's to secure their rights and their wages. And that became the, the, the basis of my movie, Food Chains. Right. I remember that. I remember watching that movie in the theater and thinking, wow, this is so under the radar and everyone needs to know about this. It's what took me to this new film, Gather. You know, the first economy in the new world, we'll refer to it as Turtle Island because it wasn't really a new world for those who were living here. Uh, The first economy was completely soil-based extractive. Yes, there was some timber, but the early economy was based on cash crops grown in the U.S. and Turtle Island sent back to Europe, tobacco, cotton, sugar cane. Now, there's a misnomer that the first settlers came to a wilderness But in fact, they'd come to a a set of communities that had been farming, that had been practicing agroecology for tens of thousands of years. And those first farms were effectively stolen native farms. Economically, and this is where it tied into food chains, to actually make the multiples of money that the investors from Europe needed, the labor had to have little or no cost. And so Africans began being imported from agrarian communities in West Africa as slaves. 
So for African-Americans, we see the, the legacy of that relationship with the U.S. government and the way they're being policed, et cetera. But for Native Americans, their value wasn't in their bodies. Their value was in their land. And that's the basis of the farming system now. So Gather really looks at that and looks at the continued resilience of those Native communities. Yeah, and it feels like, and I'll get to this a little bit later, the the it feels like the film is only it, it just the beginning of this deep dive that you can make into learning more about the Native American culture and traditional food sovereignty that we need to be aware of. But I wanted to ask you, uh, you're living in New York City. Do you have any room to grow food of your own? Or are you, where, what's your situation? I, I don't really. But mm -hmm. in the food economy, I volunteer three hours a day at my local health food store. Oh, cool. Which is, I, I live in Queens, in the middle of nowhere place. There's no Whole Foods. There's no Trader Joe's. And there's a complete dearth of healthy options from herbal medicines to dry herbs to fresh organic produce. One of my best friends owns a health food store called Guru Health Foods. And I like to be a part of the community in whatever way I can, food systems wise. And that's it. Just, you know, buying and selling produce, restocking shelves. That's awesome. Well, obviously food is an integral part of culture and of a culture's history. Many of the foods we eat today are new world foods. Can you touch on, you touch on that a little bit in the film. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Like so many cuisines around the world are based on things that we believe they've had since time immemorial, but San Marzano tomatoes didn't come to Italy until 1770. There were no capsaicin based hot peppers in Southeast Asia until the British brought them over in the 1700s. You know, a lot of beans export were exported around the world. Things like cassava in Africa that we now realize are a staple to a lot of rural economies there. Cassava came from Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. So the entire world's cuisine got upended by supply chains created by the first fortune hunters and the first capitalists that came to Turtle Island. So now I look at these foods differently. Corn, squashes, things like that. You know, we think we've mastered them through 200 or 300 years of, of cooking. But when you go to native communities, just like how chefs go to Oaxaca to learn about tortillas, and those tortillas are nothing like the ones at Taco Bell. Nothing. <laughs> you see native American communities treat these ingredients, you'll realize that we're barely scratching the surface of our knowledge of some of those crops. That's true. And I, I want to point people in the direction, if I've mentioned this before, that Native Seed Search is a seed company that specializes in indigenous food crops and varieties. And they give away seeds to Native communities to be able to steward certain varieties that are native to their particular tribe and help them keep it alive. Because the only way to preserve species is to grow them out over and over and over again. And so Native Seed Search is doing that kind of thing. Now, your, your film explores not only the genocide of Native Americans as white immigrants took over the country, 
but it talks about the struggles to maintain these traditional food cultures and practices that continue to be threatened. I mean, you just mentioned this, we know nothing about tortillas. <laughs> uh, tell me one of the foods that people might not be aware of that are that's undergoing this challenge. Well, we, we follow three stories and gather. We follow uh, an Apache chef named Nephi Craig, who comes from French culinary traditions in terms of his schooling. He cooked in a lot of great kitchens. And in the movie, he's trying to open a very high-end, incredibly affordable restaurant on the White Mountain Apache Reservation in eastern Arizona to reintroduce traditional foods to his community. We also follow a young Yurok fisherman from the Klamath River in Northern California as he tries to reintroduce kids to the fishing cultures that have sustained them for thousands of years. And lastly, we follow a young woman from uh, South Dakota, a woman named Elsie Dubray, who lives on a bison ranch. Now, for, for me, bison are perhaps the most fascinating ingredient in the movie. People may or may not know, but the Great Plains were at one point the third largest carbon sink in the entire world. And the entire ecosystem, actually even stretching down into the Carolinas, was based around the migration of bison. They were integral to the health of the land, to animals, and to other beings, including humans. The Midwest was effectively conquered by the U.S. military, the natives displaced, and that incredibly rich topsoil replaced with wheat and corn. And we've seen an incredible amount of environmental degradation in the Midwest due to the, the destruction of those plains. But I think it's also important, especially as, as we talk about farming and ingredients, to recognize the place of animals in this ecosystem. Consumers might only think of bees, if anything, but they're not thinking of birds. They're certainly not thinking of large mammals, especially because large mammals are such an anathema to like USDA and, and FDA regulations on farms. But those large animals are integral to soil health. And I would like to see us think about the sustainability of these large wild herds of elk and bison vis-a-vis -vis the way we treat our own farm economies. Yeah, and we've had some guests on this podcast who've talked about that, the importance of tramplers in reversing desertification and a bunch of other components that when we once we've separated the farm uh, animals from the farm, we end up with this this problem where we've got too much manure and not a place to put it. And, you know, it's just, it's a bad system. But if we keep it integrated and, and you know, restore the, the uh, planes to a carbon sink like it needs to be, then we, then the animals would, well, we, I guess we would have more of the bison that we need for the people, right? <laughs> to answer your question, finally, actually, in terms of ingredients, like when when we look at the farm economy, particularly the small-scale farm economy, they're still growing for consumer preference. And that consumer preference has really been driven by supermarkets, which are completely homogeneous. So you go to any farmer's market in the country, and you're going to see the same types of cherry tomatoes from the same seed catalogs. You're going to see the same mescaline lettuces. And it's not really teaching people what localism really means. People now think that being a locavore just means eating things that were grown within a certain vicinity of you, but not necessarily eating things that the land around you supports naturally. And as people change their farming techniques, they realize that certain things thrive better than other things. 
But those things might be root vegetables in the winter, things that aren't really that sexy. So agriculture or even local agriculture is still so environmentally intensive because we as consumers haven't really understood how to eat in our location. So to that effect, there's a story in Gather, which people will have to see to believe, where we go on a hunt with, a, with an Apache forager named Twyla Cassador. And we go hunting for this really rare creature called a glosho. They're only really ideal to eat in the winter, in December and January, because their fur is free of parasites. But more importantly, they've eaten a lot of herbs and digested the, the lectins in them that make them medicinally available for human beings through their flesh. Oh. And so we go and we catch this little thing. Now, in the 15 and 1600s, when the Spanish, Spanish came to, to the Apacheria and they saw the Apache eating these things, they were aghast. This was the time of the Black Plague in the early 1600s, and the Glosho is more commonly known as a pack rat. I mean, it's a rat, but it obviously has never seen garbage in its life. It lives in the desert, eats mesquite, lives under cacti, and is an incredibly bioavailable source of protein in the winter when elk are getting pregnant and other animals are in the wrong type of gestation, a seasonal cycle. And so... It's a chore. It, it is food sovereignty for Twyla Casador to reintroduce this traditional protein to a society that's been so affected by colonization that, you know, the taste has become much more, you know, geared towards church's chicken and KFC <laughs> right. rather than elk and bison and these more gamey things. And I've never had anything as gamey as this little gloss show. There's no, there's no fat in the thing. It's a rat. It like spends all its day like trying not to get eaten by snakes and by hawks. That's funny. I yeah, that part I I have to say that was a little hard to watch. But I understand that it's it's the idea of foraging in local communities that makes it you know a good idea. So yeah, why not? Yeah, like that's that's seasonality. It's like this thing is abundant all year round, but you only really eat it in two months of the year because it's eating the medicinal plants that you need for immunity in the winter. Right. So it's really this idea of food as medicine, not just in terms of like vitamin content, but actually in terms of the way that food reacts with our body, depending on the time of the year. Yeah. And in defense of root vegetables, I will say there's some of my favorite things to grow. I don't even like beets, but I grow them for other people because they're so easy to grow and they do really well in the winter. So fall for warm, for warm winter climates, fall is the best time to grow the root vegetables. So I feel like it's, it's, we're in alignment here on seasonality. The root vegetables, the brassicas, all of these winter foods, people haven't really developed Kids, I should say, in school systems haven't really introduced those foods as something environmentally important for kids to like. It's, yeah. just, it's much easier just getting the packages of stuff from the supermarket. But until we redefine from the farming side what local actually means, that it means hyper-seasonal, it means something, it means pre-contact foods, as natives would say. What grew on Turtle Island long before people came and tried to import a European farm economy. I, I feel like this documentary covers a lot of ground, but really it's just skimming the surface on the larger issues that would be way too much to cover in one film. Environmental impact, human influences, health issues among Native peoples. There's so much we could dive deeper into. Was there anything in particular that you learned 
while you were making this film that still sticks with you today? You know, Native Americans are, they're not considered by, by modern society as farmers. You know, we kind of think of them as following bison or hunting or living in the wilderness in completely uncontrolled environments. But they had exceptional systems of animal husbandry, they had exceptional systems of stewardship. When the early Spaniards landed in Florida and began riding through the, the forests there, they were surprised that they could actually ride on horses unencumbered by branches. But that was really the exquisite aspect of forest management, where underbrush was cleared, etc. And when you look at the Southwest, some of the, the most amazing irrigation systems were built in the Pueblos. They've been farming corn in one way, shape, or form for seven or 8,000 years. Furthermore, modern geneticists understand that corn is a completely human-made vegetable, entirely bred by human hands to an ex exceptionally academic degree. So like when I went to Pueblo farms, and saw the variety of corn they grow and how sacred those relatives are to them and how a lot of those corn had been taken from them by Western scientists, turned into GMO varieties or turned into model, modern commercial varieties and seeing the pain that these farmers still feel from seeing their relatives taken and changed. At the same time, when I tasted the food, like the tamales that one of our producers' grandmother made out of that homegrown corn, I understood that like the farm-to-table cycle is even longer than that. Mm -hmm. It's like you've got to go back into the genetic tradition of the crop, and you have to take that all the way to the palate. We can't necessarily, I mean, we, we, as consumers, we can transform an ingredient to make it taste good. But if those varieties taste good despite the skill or lack thereof of a chef, that's where I think we win. Yeah, that's true. So corn, as we know, comes from teosinte, which is the early grass form of corn. And it really has changed over time. And I know that in the past years, there's been a whole effort to DNA test corn for traces of genetic DNA because transgenic contamination is a big issue. And all of these really important native species of corn have been preserved for so long, thousands of years, and now they're being contaminated by transgenic DNA. Have you, did you run into that at all in your experience? Well, yeah, like, like these corns are, are, are sacred. Mm -hmm. And so for natives now seeing how the rest of us are really killing ourselves literally through our food. They've protected them. Like the, the Hopi reservation is in the middle of the Navajo reservation in the middle of Arizona. It's at six and 7,000 feet. There's a series of mesas that literally jut out of the desert. The Hopi there basically say in the future, people, as when the world burns, people are going to be coming to the Hopi and begging for their corn, which they dry farm, and there's very little rain on that mesa. But the Hopi say, you know, they're going to come for our corn, and we're not going to give it to them. So that that just epitomizes the amount of pain in Native communities and how many bridges we, we've burned that we need to rebuild, because they still hold 10,000 years of scientific knowledge uh, over all the crops that we've now mass-produced. 
from corn to various rices to various legumes. The knowledge still exists there, and the knowledge exists because it's rooted in their spirituality, their creation stories, the way they look at Mother Earth, the humility they have towards Mother Earth, all results in a food system that we know. We look at that farming, those farming techniques, and we package them as regenerative or permaculture, or even as traditional ecological knowledge. But those terms don't do that lifestyle justice. People in the food system rely on a relationship with Mother Earth that I think we are all just beginning to scratch the surface of. Yeah, agreed. Well, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip that you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Yeah, you know, I, I think what in my eyes, one of the things that this movie Gather has, has really opened for me, consciousness-wise, is an understanding of the original people of the land that I'm on, you know, to understand, you know, you can look up the, the tribe that is or was on the, on the land that you farm. And I, once I've begun to research those tribes and their food traditions, I've realized how much broader my palate should be and how much more I can learn about what it really means to be a local food consumer. That's a really great tip. I grew up on Chumash land and I remember doing book reports about them, but I never explored the food. So that is something I'm going to do. Thank you so much for sharing that expert tip, Sanjay. And thanks for being on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. So much fun, Christy. Thank you. Sure. Now, how do people find you and the film? The film is on Instagram at Gather Film. We're also on Facebook, Gather Film Project. My Instagram is Mr. Sanjay R. And people can stream the film where? People can stream the film on iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo On Demand. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. And all right, Garden Nerds, you'll find a link to the trailer for Sanjay's new film, Gather, on GardenNerd.com this week. We'll also post links to the stories behind the characters in the film so you can dive deeper into the subject and support their endeavors. Check out the journalism project while you're at it. It's kind of cool. Uh, that's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening! <laughs>